0: And uh, we usually have a brand new episode of Weird Comics History for you this week, but uh, we do not have it for you this week because it's a holiday week and I could not get the research done for the final episode of Underground Comics History done today or this week. So we are going to give you a uh, kind of a stitch together of a couple of old ones, right,
1: Chris? Yeah, yeah. and and, you know we're not really leaving the the purview of uh, the Underground Comic here. That's true. uh, yeah, this is kind of an evolution of the underground comic, uh probably something we would have discussed. Uh, something we will be discussing in the uh the final part of the underground special. Yeah. But uh
0: but you know, yeah, we really didn't have a plan to give these particular topics which we're going to reveal very soon. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this much this much time. Uh, yes. you know, this is this these are full episodes about uh Par- Paradox or Piranha Press and which later mm-hmm. became Paradox Press which were early imprints for DC comics uh to showcase independent artists and such yep um so we're going to be put those two together these used to be embedded in uh, weird weird science DC comics podcast what was that 77 you said right
1: 76 and 77 i believe
0: so they used to be in episode 76 77 we've plucked them out stitched them together and uh, for your listening enjoyment so uh, sit back and enjoy. Some of the information on it is wrong, though. That's why we had to do this intro. And uh, Yes. So you can still follow me uh, on Twitter at Reggie Reggie.
1: I'm still at Ace Comics.
0: But if you want to email us, we are at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, yes. Don't bother Jim and Eric with your nonsense about our uh, podcast. <laughs> you can bother us um, uh, us with it directly.
1: <laughs> Unless you're Mark Nevelo and you only listen to the first part. Just uh, email whoever you can.
0: Exactly. You reach out to us, Mark Nevelo. We're dying to talk to you. That was a mm-hmm. big mystery doing the research for this. But I uh, hope you guys enjoy it, and we will be back in two weeks from now with the final episode of Underground Comics History and uh, touch on some of this stuff, too. So it's almost like you'll be doing some extra credit work here. Absolutely. So uh hope you guys enjoy, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya. Comics history. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some weird comics history every week on Weird Science DC podcast. This week we have uh, some information about a little known imprint on DC Comics, uh, one of its first imprints, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was its first attempt at a true mature reader's line. Uh, it was the first DC Comics imprint to allow creator owned material. And its work was commissioned from mostly unknown creators uh, in the mainstream, uh, mostly those with somewhat established but not too established names in the alternative comics and underground comics with an X field. Uh, this ran from 1989 to 1994, and the name of it was Piranha Press, also known as Comics with Teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about that today. What do what, what you got to tell us here?
1: Well, let's see. This uh, this was all started in the—well, uh, they, they planned this in the mid to late 80s. It didn't really kick off, like you said, until 1989. Um, and, you know, a lot of the newer uh, readers uh, probably don't know a whole lot about the industry of the late 80s. It yeah. was a very different time, and, uh, you know, uh, alternative comics were starting to become a viable business model for— uh, for comics primarily due to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. It was the uh, first time that you could see, like, I mean, there's been other black and white comics or, you know, alternative or under, underground comics, but right. none of them really, you know, got into the, just got into the popular culture like the Turtles did.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there was stuff, I, I think American Flag was out, and uh, you, mm-hmm. can't, you can't forget, of course, the British comics. Cerebus. Were, Cerebus, right, by Dave yeah. Sim was out, and, and you can't forget the British comics were essentially black and white Somewhat independent, you know, comics, independent at least of DC and Marvel, you know, uh, as we know them. Yeah, uh, the
1: western side, yeah. Yeah,
0: it was definitely Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I tend to slur that one like everyone else. Uh, I believe that debuted in 85, and that one, uh, the first issue, the print run, was 5,000 copies. Crazy. And, And within the same week, it was going for $100, which you know then was not a not a normal price for a comic and now also not really a normal price say, for a comic yeah. to fetch so that's that, 1980s that brought in,
1: dollars yeah oh
0: yeah yeah that was that was something uh and you know it just snowballed from there had a lot of pretenders to it this is all possible because of the direct market which we've mm-hmm. touched on but we're not going to go into great detail <laughs> about right now not yet so but, uh, it, it was—it was this influx of, of things, uh, you know, speculators, a lot more interest in comics, and a lot more black and white comics, attempting to grab that lightning in a bottle.
1: Yeah, because I mean, you had uh, Dark Horse started in '86, because I think they're uh, they're doing their 30th anniversary this year. Right. And uh, you know, Caliber Comics, First Comics, Eclipse Comics, and even Marvel got in on the creator-owned thing with uh, their Epic line of comics. Yeah. Which. Uh, which actually I think started uh, either the very late 70s or early 80s with uh, Epic Illustrated.
0: It did. That was a little older. That was at first attempting to...
1: Like a heavy metal magazine.
0: Exactly, yeah. It was Marvel's answer to heavy metal, but by the mid-80s it was their independent uh, line in a sense. Uh, I don't yeah. think did it make it to eighty
1: nine. I don't remember. But it made it into it made it into the nineties. Oh really? With yeah. uh, they they changed it to their heavy hitters line, epic heavy hitters. It right. Was, uh, That's right. The the quality was quite a bit different than you know. It wasn't it wasn't Grew the Wanderer and Elfquest anymore. It was <laughs> it was some other stuff. Yeah. Some unmentionables. And, uh, yes. Yes. Like uh, the Last American. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, but uh, DC had yet to enter the alternative or you know. Underground, quote unquote, market. Um, they, you know, of course, we know they have published books that were considered mature audience-only books, like you know, Watchmen, right. like, like Frank Miller's Ronin, Dark Knight Returns, stuff like that. Sure. But uh, never really, never really tried to get this kind of comic done. No,
0: and they'd also done a lot of original graphic novels at this point, or not a lot, sure. but a handful of them. So a they, handful, yeah. They were they were definitely exploiting the direct market and seeing w- what it could yield for them.
1: Uh, and uh, this led to it was still, it was still, you know, the direct market was still in its infancy, relatively. It, it was, so, you know, uh, a lot of it, tests in the waters for sure.
0: No one knew how far you could really push this stuff. But, but, and you know, the profit margin for you know, a couple of guys financing a black and white comic versus DC or Marvel is a, is, they're two different stories, so oh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, they did form a imprint, Piranha Press, as I said, comics with teeth. This was. Adult illustrated fiction. It was on the cutting edge in style and innovation in the industry. Uh, You know, the covers were mainly of a purple and teal bent, as (laughs) as was uh, common in the 1990s, Um, Mm -hmm. and definitely had some very unusual cover designs, uh, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah. But but it 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 stood out on the racks in a in a big way. Uh, they certainly they started putting pieces in place for this imprint in eighty seven. It was announced through the comics journal number one seventeen in September nineteen eighty seven. Uh article was titled Newswatch DC Aims to Take a Bite Out of Comics with Piranha. Uh, and you know, this was supposed to be an experimental form for creators to do what they wanted to do and to own their work. Although, as we'll talk about later, we're not really sure how that all shook out later on down the line, but the initial works were definitely creator-owned and, uh, you know, frankly, deserved to be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we talked about, you know, they uh, they started putting those pieces in place, and some of those pieces are the key players. And... Uh, you got to start with uh, Mark Nevelo. Yes, who was the, the mysterious founder. Mark Nevelo. Yes, the enigmatic Mark <laughs> Nevelo. He, uh, he was the founder and editor uh, for from 1989, the launch, until 1991. So only a couple years. And, uh, you know, it's said that he was an associate at Khan, but uh, really can't say for certain because uh, that's all coming secondhand from people who didn't get the position that he applied for. So mm. we don't know if they're just claims of friendism or or not right um and mark Nevelo uh kind of uh he kind of called forth his inner bill jemis when, when <laughs> discussing uh when discussing piranha press he described these as these are com- well, of course comics for people who don't read comics right which you know is a is a comic chestnut these days oh but
0: God, uh I, you know it's something, <laughs> something you just hate to hear like i like i, I said, know I, it it's like fans of the Beastie Boys that don't like hip hop. It's just like yeah, this, get, get this, out he's of here. It's rap you know? for
1: people who don't like rap. Oh, yeah. You're gross. <laughs> he <laughs> described Piranha's target audience. Now get this: frustrated males, age 18 to 20, and those frustrated males are the kind that have trouble getting dates. Yeah. See, that's not you. Do, you don't really want to denigrate your target audience you know.
0: like that. It's
1: right. it's kind. It's, it's funny because it's he kind of it's. This whole thing for comics that people for people who don't read comics kind of puts them on a plane above, you yeah. know the the mere mortal comic reader, and uh, and then to denigrate the uh, that audience even further is kind of I, that that
0: is sort of weird, you know. he's kind of turned around and then you know pointed them out. I mean, frankly, <laughs> I was a frustrated male, age eighteen to twenty, but I didn't want someone <laughs> to tell me that. You know, that's part of what of my frustration not. was.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. This is a. Uh, at least there were no, you know, bad girls for fanboys who live in their parents' basement. <laughs> right. <So laughs> in fact, he didn't mention the parents' basement at all. So I got to give him points for that. That's good. Yeah, he, he didn't go as far <laughs> as Bill. No, um, his associate editor was a was a was a lady named Karen McBurney, and. Uh, precious little on the internet about her. I I could not find anything except a brief mention of graphic novels on a New York lifestyle blog written by a Karen McBurney, which may or may not be her. Yeah, that's, (laughs) uh, you know, you can follow that thread yourself if you like listeners. You you can keep digging down that hole. I don't know if it'll be uh, (laughs) if You find anything. Um, Then uh, we got here uh, Dean Motter who uh, created the uh, Piranha Press banner and the he gave the aesthetic look to the line that we that we just that we talked about a little bit earlier. Right, and uh, he was not from comics. He was an album cover artist, which uh, really gave Piranha Press a instantly identifiable look. It's a uh, like you were saying. It's it's those those rad 90s colors and yeah. uh, it, it and was the colors.
0: The fact that the imprint logo was down the spine. Uh, yeah. Each each cover kind of had it's it's tough to explain verbally. It's really something you should look up and take a look at if you're interested. But they sort of framed each cover image in a piranha press border that yeah, was
1: unique to the to that imprint only. Yeah, the trade dress was just—it was like we said earlier—it was, uh, it's something that it it was something that would not be out of place on Zach Morris's T-shirt. For sure, it's it's very bright. There's a nice little fish on it, and uh, the thing of it is, is it, it it really clashed with the look of the actual art inside the book. So you had the covers with this smudgy or realistic or just darker tone, and then you have this bright, you know, day glow. A fish. Yeah, a
0: yeah. Which, it, uh, it definitely was a strange, stark contrast. I really think that was, was like, like really, we were looking at the '80s turning into the '90s. You know, kind of a yes. grittiness turning into a kind of veneer. Uh, Absolutely. I maybe, you know, that that, that may be a little too much extrapolation for a comic book cover, but that that's definitely how I how I perceive it. Uh, I think it's really interesting too that he he used album cover artists because that's something that doesn't really exist. As much as it used to, these used to be no. highly trained designers and people that really knew much about composition and the weight of a picture, because that's the kind of and, and, and you know what's going to sell an album. Obviously, uh, you know, making these these bold square pieces of art that were something that you could behold and look at. Now it's something the size of your thumbnail. Yeah, who cares? You know, it doesn't really matter if it's it's usually like a picture of grandma with some text over it, and we're done, and that's that's good enough. You know, but uh you know album cover artists or or and designers it this used to be a real uh serious vocation and guys that could do that well would do it over and over again make some of the greatest ones for some reason only uh to my mind Andy Warhol's coming up who made only one album cover for the stones that i can think of mm-hmm. but there were there were one there were there were guys out there who that was their li- livelihood was to uh do album covers for different musicians so i you know it's it's part of like the CD culture, you know what I mean? The album purchasing yep. culture, so all this stuff that is irrelevant today uh, <laughs> was, was still viable here in, in 1989, and uh, I find that pretty fascinating.
1: Oh, I love it. It's uh, it's it's truly you know it gets you into the gestalt of when this was actually in production. For sure. And, uh, and uh, Mr. Uh, Mata did do a little bit of comics work, uh, including a uh, prestige format series based on the a british tv series the prisoner mm-hmm. with uh, patrick McGowan, which uh yeah I, I i have the entire thing i just have not read it <laughs> it's just on that pile that keeps growing but I mean, i'm used uh, to know how it, it is
0: I, I did like the prisoner as a kid as, as you pointed out it's more a show better to talk about than to watch
1: yeah it's uh and... i definitely enjoyed discussing the finer <laughs> points of it rather than watching it it's uh it's one of those shows where certain episodes fly by and certain episodes take about six days to get
0: through. They do, yeah. You're just, like, <laughs> you know, just so confused and there's so much uh, plotting nonsense. You really, when he's getting chased by the white ball, that's what you want.
1: Yeah, that's so that's that's, that's, about that's it. the scene you need.
0: <laughs> so there were a few key publications for Piranha Press. Uh, we're going to talk about a few of them. Uh, the most notable one was cer- certainly Beautiful Stories for Ugly Children. This had thirty issues. Or mm-hmm. volumes from June 89 to September 92. This was the only one that had a regular release schedule, I believe. I think so. Uh, this was uh, written by Dave, and uh, we're going to say Looper, but it's not sure. spelled that way, and drawn by Dan Sweetman. Uh, this was really more of a uh, picture novel, and kind of in the sense of a, uh, it rhymes with lust that we talked about, that Arnold Drake and Leslie Waller, wrote in 1950. We talked about that a few episodes ago on the first Arnold Drake episode. Uh, it was really pictures on one side, words on the other, sometimes some words below a picture, but the picture was not, you know, immediately tied to the text on the page necessarily. Uh, yeah, no word balloons. No word balloons, exactly. This, I mean, it really wasn't a, a comic in the traditional sense, I, I would say. Uh, no. To, frankly, it's it's it actually is more akin to those... Um, text stories that used to be put into comics up until about what the, the early 70s I think in order to yeah, get the them a lower photos. yeah, yeah. To, for a lower postage postage rate it mm-hmm. was like if you had a certain amount of text you could uh I don't know pass it off as a magazine instead of whatever the hell else they thought it was <laughs> so it it was kind of a it was kind of reminiscent of that however uh having seen them as as a young man um The art I thought was terrible. Uh, I really hated it. The reproduction of it was really bad, and I never actually read any of the stories in this series. I I can't claim to have even flipped through every single one. I probably looked at the first, I don't know, four or five, and Mm. uh, moved on from them because, you know, just the art turned me off right away. So for all I know, those stories could be brilliant, I want to say. They could be. To Dave Looper, (laughs) I'm not denigrating your stories. I can have no opinion on them. Another one was Gregory. This had four volumes, ran from October 89 to February 93 through December 93. This was by Mark Hempel, written and drawn. And this was a story of an institutionalized baby, boy, alien? We don't know. It's (laughs) it's unclear. Something with eyes that look like paint streaks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Living in a uh, a mental institution, we think, probably. Or some kind of an institution. It was an institution, yeah. yeah. With a a rat. Yeah, he had a straitjacket and everything with a rat named Herman the Vermin and a mouse named Wendell, who was uh, sort of his normal to yes. Herman the Vermin's Garfield. You actually just looked at this uh, yesterday, right? Just out of well, curiosity. I
1: read, yeah, I read it just... Uh, I Or tried reading it. I, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's something. It looks like it would be like in one of those magazines you'd get at the head shop. I mean, it's uh, it just... Uh, it's weird. And uh, the it it seems to be like they wanted to have some sort of a poignancy to it. Like... Uh, the entire, the entire volume, he's wanting to get out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, at the end he gets out and he wants to go back in. And uh, so it's very, I, I think it tries to play with uh, feelings of home, feelings of abandonment, feelings of loneliness. But uh, it, I, I can't say that I
0: enjoyed it. It pretty much strikes out on all of them. You know, I actually had three of the volumes, and uh, as I told Chris, I, I held on to them for probably 20 years for some reason, kind of,
1: I kept trying to read them to figure out I was missing something. You know, what am I? It's uh, one of those for sure, where you think it's going over your head or you think that there's just one thing that isn't clicking, which would make it brilliant. Yeah. But uh, but
0: you reach a point in your life, you figure if if it's going (laughs) over my head, then that's just how it's going to be. You know, I'm just going to let it go.
1: (laughs) uh, Yes, I I will be ignorant. Yes.
0: (laughs) So uh, I was no. And then the the last one, Why I Hate Saturn. This is probably one of the most uh, revered, well, best remembered. Uh, sorry, uh, titles from this imprint uh, had one yeah. volume. Just it was, it was an original graphic novel in June of nineteen ninety. This was written and drawn by Kyle Baker. Uh, this is a story of twin sisters, one of whom believes herself to be from Saturn, and the other is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one. I, I, I also talked with Chris about this a little bit, but uh, one of the most overrated comics, definitely of this period, definitely of this type. Uh, you know, I, I like the the art. The line is very nice, but the story is meandering in the beginning. And then about two-thirds of the way through, the last third of it, something happened. Either the deadline was looming or Mark Hempel realized he was running out of pages. Because the last third of the book is like everything that happens in the book happens in practically a montage. You know, it really gyps you. Uh, Chris and I both hate the lettering. It's very precious. (laughs) This art deco style that must have taken him... A ridiculous amount of time, you know. Uh, oh, I bet. If it takes three times as long to letter a page as it took to ink it, or to draw it, you you've run into a problem now. You know, you've written too much, <laughs> yeah. or the lettering went, is too complicated, or your passion is just really directed the wrong way. Exactly. Yeah, you could have spent a little more time, maybe plotting the book correctly instead of like <laughs> making sure the e's all had the proper curve to them. Now this one is strange because DC. Uh, Did reprint this via Vertigo and DC does have the rights. You heard, you read an interview where Mark Hempel said he has no involvement in it because DC has the rights. uh...
1: Yeah, because I guess they there was option for a movie and someone had asked him uh, what his thoughts were and he said, "Well, I don't own it anymore, so I have no opinion." Yeah, it's so it's very very weird and. I was doing a little bit more research, and I found that this was actually made available online for free, and now it's not anymore. Interesting. So it's, was it
0: was made available it, by him.
1: By him, oh, yeah. Because yeah. it was a Newsarama article from a few years ago, and it said, you know, read this for free. And I clicked on it, and you know, you go to the you get the 404 page. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and then doing a little bit of uh, reverse engineering on that, I, uh, I I couldn't find it anymore. It just it links to a uh, to where you can buy it. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's hard to say what
0: I mean, really, really anything could have happened here.
1: Sure, uh, we don't know what the contracts were, if there were contracts. Or...
0: You know, I mean, anything from he could have lost it in a poker game, or maybe <laughs> you know the contract had a weird stipulation. It's, it's we don't know, but it definitely goes against the creator-owned uh, directive Mandate, of the imprint. Yeah. yeah so uh, anyone who has any information on that, we'd love to know what happened to Certainly. to uh, why you hate Saturn. Couple more notable titles uh, that came out from Piranha over the years: the score by uh, Gerard Jones, who was known for uh, Green Lantern and Justice League, with Mark Badger on art; uh, Epicurious, the Sage by William Mesner Loebes, known for his Flash and Wonder Woman, among other things, with Sam Keith on art. Who, you know, what I remember Sam Keith from? He did a Lobo, hmm. didn't he? Do a Lobo run, a mini-series? You know, it would,
1: it would fit. I'm I, almost I would positive. believe it.
0: That's what. That's you know, we we Please. actually. talked about this yesterday or two days ago and i couldn't remember what i think i'm remembering him from a lobo a very weird like metal heavy metal type lobo uh
1: anyway he's probably best known for hulk and uh the
0: max for sure yeah oh yeah i I should have mentioned those two but yeah Yeah. uh i was remembering him from a weird (laughs) miniseries that probably not anyone's read in however many
1: years messner Loeb's actually did scripting on uh, the Max too, so oh, wow. they uh, so they stayed together for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this might have been what put them together. Uh, it was uh, a humor book about Greek myths, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. And then and the the other one we want to mention, which was actually was the final publication of Piranha Press, if I'm if I'm not incorrect here, mm-hmm. was uh, Prince and the New Power Generation by uh, DC Comics Titans, Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cohen. Uh-huh. Uh, this was the final book published in 1994, which I don't know if that was really a great time to be talking about Prince, the new power generation. Uh, <laughs> was, was he
1: still Prince at that point?
0: I don't think he was. I think he'd already become yeah. the uh, artist formerly known as. Maybe they were just remembering the glory days of uh, when uh, you know Gloria Stefan was on the crew, or what's, you know, all those other personalities. So. Uh, so that so that was it. That was that was the closing.
1: Uh... Yeah, and these were these were notable. I just wanted to point out because the initial mandate was that these were going to be underground creators, and I mean, you know, Gerard Jones was doing the Justice League, and uh, yeah, and, and was doing Wonder Woman. I mean, and Dwayne McDuffie was, and Dennis Cohen are they're just you know ubiquitous. They're just everywhere in DC. Sure. So it's uh, so it's interesting that these that these titles actually wound up in piranha press with, uh, you know, with the underground movement, and the alternative movement. It's, uh, just, it's an odd juxtaposition.
0: Well, something obviously changed. It did. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? That's a good segue.
1: <laughs> well, we talked about how Mark Neville was the, you know, directing editor for, uh, two years, but, uh, Andy Helford, uh, the guy who did uh, editing on Man of Steel, he also did a, a stint with uh, the Justice League International. Yeah. He uh, assumed editorial control from the exiting Nevelo and uh, immediately decides to change the direction of Piranha Press. And, uh, you know, get this. He actually wanted commercial success what? for the uh, imprint. I know. No. I know.
0: Cast him down, <laughs> you know. Yes, he, uh, when he what about in, those he... people who don't read comics? What about the comics for them?
1: I know it. He, when he was questioned about either Neville or Piranha, he described them as as non-commercial as they come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's true. That's about right. <laughs> this, I would agree. I would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, that's a very good assessment. And uh, he aimed for the bookstore market, seeing, you know, because when you have those comics for people who don't read comics, they're not going to go into a comic book Oh, store. no. They don't even know where the comic book store is. Do they still have those? <laughs> <laughs> No, they, they only knew about them when they were standing online to buy Superman 75. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, Helfer decides to aim for the bookstore market, and uh, this is initially uh, accepted as a failure because, you know, this is Borders, Barnes & Noble, wherever, you know, B. Dalton. Sure. And, you know, they didn't have graphic novel sections. They didn't have trade paperback sections for, for comics. It was uh, – you know, you might find these books next to Garfield, You might find these books in the kids' section. You might find these books next to Dungeons & Dragons.
0: Yeah, I remember, so, it, and sometimes, like, in the art books' section. It really, it really was all over the place. Uh, there also just wasn't... Uh, uh, there weren't as many books as there are now. I mean, you go to the graphic yeah, novel section, not only are there, is there everything that every current publisher puts out, but there's reprints going back to you know, the turn of the last century. It's yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah, The manga is its own... You know, that's... Yeah. Probably another show about how Manga really did create <laughs> this section in uh, bookstores, yeah. but that's, uh, yeah, it, it was different. For, for newer readers that might be used to going to their bookstore and seeing a graphic novel section, It did, that did not exist not too long ago.
1: And a bunch of kids with, with backpacks sitting on the floor reading.
0: That's right. I see it every time. <laughs> I saw it yesterday in a
1: bookstore, in fact. I believe it. Uh, and uh, he transitioned uh, from Piranha Press into Paradox Press. Yeah, and uh, we'll be we'll be hitting that next time. Right, but uh, around the same time, DC, you know, went went all in on a uh, mature line, and you might have heard of it. It's called Vertigo. Ooh. And that launched. Uh, I I have the uh, I have the in, the initial like uh, announcement publication, and that was dated December 1992. Wow. So uh, I think I think maybe either December 92 or January 93 is when Vertigo actually struck. Yeah. And uh, they started uh, that by shifting some of the darker properties uh, of DC proper into the imprint, like, uh, you know, Doom Patrol after uh, Rachel Pollack popped on and uh, Sandman, uh, Swamp Thing, Shade the Changing Man. Right. Sandman was after, like, I don't remember, six issues. Like a dozen issues. Yeah, something, something like, like that, that, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, Let's see here, and you know, Vertigo. As I'm sure we'll talk about at length another time. It, it's become a haven for creator-owned work, uh, and you know, yeah, trains, metropolitan, preacher, why the last man scalped. There's just
0: it goes a on ton.
1: and on, yeah,
0: absolutely. Ex Machina, Sweet Tooth. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, pretty much, and you know, a lot of your favorite creators today that work in mainstream comics have done something through Vertigo. Uh, Certainly. Uh, American Vampire, that you know Scott Snyder's thing, so it, yeah. it, it you know it still is pretty respected. It's kind of going through some uh, changes recently, but you know it's as of right now, as of this recording, it's still a very respected creator-owned imprint of some stripe. I really can't mm-hmm. say. So, uh, <laughs> why do you think Piranha Press failed? Uh, there's a few reasons why it might have failed, not mm-hmm. owing uh, only to Mark Nevelo's being mysterious and weird. <laughs> um, for one thing, it, I think I definitely agree that it was too experimental uh, by getting a lot of unknown creators and just going totally away from their normal comics language. It, it was different than even other alternative press comics yeah. at the time. I mean, there, there were what you might, might even call art comics. Uh, it wasn't just uh, you know radioactive ninja hamsters. There were uh, <laughs> a lot of thoughtful and, and you know this kind of is the birth of the noir the comic around this time. Uh, mm-hmm. Sin City came out not too long after '94, right? '95 ish or something. I think so. Um, so people were taking comics seriously. Frankly, Daredevil had an amazing run right at the, right around this time. That sure. is very cinematic. Uh, but you know, it, it, it was it hadn't tapped into that. Uh, people, no. I think people were ready for something different in comics, and this was not it. Uh, and the era of real underground comics with an X. Ex- Uh, maybe one day we'll explain why that is but that's that's what we we call the real 1960s underground comics Uh, that had passed that really was no longer what people wanted to see which was sort of psychedelia and just outlandish
1: uh, I don't know we we talked a little bit off off the uh, air with uh, once once corporate America gets involved with something underground it's not cool anymore (laughs) it's just not I mean, this was and so
0: so obviously a, a corporation feeding you something you, you know, mm-hmm. that you were already getting uh, the real version of. I think it was obvious even to the casual reader, even to the non-comics reader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of poor written stories, uh, as I talked about with the three comics I mentioned that I have read. I found them to be very uh, technically poor in part of plotting and pacing and even just making any real sense. Um, You know, Gregory, it just is, when you finish reading it, you really get the sense that you've wasted your fucking time. (laughs) Um, So there's, so, and there was no continuity between them. You know, you mentioned, you talked about the other day about there being these recurring characters in the uh, Ugly Stories for Beautiful Children.
1: Yeah, the clowns showed up uh, in two subsequent issues. The, the, The clowns were in the first issue.
0: Yeah, and then and they, uh, showed, they showed up again later yeah, on. Yeah, like an 11 and 13 or something like that. Try to find those action figures in the DC universe. In uh, <laughs> DC set. Direct, yeah. Exactly, but, um, <laughs> you know, still, even even then, and, and, you know, I'm sort of talking out of turn because I haven't read them, but I don't think it was like the continuing adventures of the creepy clowns. I actually remember no, I think- the first issue and the clowns looking sort of like killer clowns from outer space.
1: It's uh, very similar. Bloated, yeah, they were, like, old to see, and, yeah. yeah. Um, and, definitely and it's, meant to you out. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's it's weird that, you know, they, they put so much into establishing a brand, but it's like, you know, when you go to a, like, if I go to a bookstore and I'm looking for a novel and it's by, you know, HarperCollins or right. whatever, I'm not a HarperCollins fan. Right. So I'm not going to go and just buy, like, just buy books because it's from it's blindly, one publisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's no reason to keep up with Piranha, and you're not going to go and just be like, "Ooh, that's Piranha," so I want it. Yeah. So you need to have some sort of. There needs to be a hook, and I don't think that there was one. You know,
0: where where Vertigo definitely has a hook. You know, they have Certainly. a hook of sort of like a. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't want to den- denigrate any fans. I read lots of Vertigo titles, but it sort of speaks to a certain sensitive, uh, introspective <laughs> type of person. Do you, you think that's fair to say? I don't. I don't think I'm really. I, I...
1: You know, it's, I think it's 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 different than mainstream or the the, the comparable mainstream for sure. And yeah. but you know, at the at the same token, you know. If you're if you're a Sandman reader, you're going to come back and read Sandman. So you're going to buy all 10 volumes of Sandman. That's the other thing, where, too, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, if you're going to bu- it's like you're not going to go in and buy Gregory and then maybe buy a collection. Because there was one collection of uh, ugly stories or beautiful stories. There was one collection. Right. And I think it contained all the clown stories. But, oh, I wow. mean, it's like you're not going to – it just seems like –
0: it doesn't they, transfer from one to the, you know, it's not the same yeah, aesthetic for each one. So if you like exactly. why you hate Saturn, that doesn't mean you're going to like ugly stories. Yeah, it's, yeah
1: the, the tone is completely different. and And in making comics for people who don't like comics, they didn't go far enough because they're still trying to placate the collector. Yeah. You know, and it's like the people who don't read comics... Guess what? They don't collect them yeah, either. They, they don't give a shit about that at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they might. They might have the issue with Obama and Spider-Man, <laughs> but that's about <laughs> all they've got.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially right around you know, as we talked about with the speculating, you know, that would sure. all pretty much tank uh, along with the uh, conclusion of this uh, imprint, which probably had uh, not a little bit to do with the, you know with each other. Uh, yeah. As we talked about in the beginning, the you know him using unknown creators pursuing. Uh, people that just were not known that, or were very, you know, might've been respected within the, in the, within the industry or the, within the scene, but they had never, uh,
1: they had no name value. They had
0: no name. I mean, they, they could have gotten, you know, you have a couple of names, Art Spiegelman, Kim, Kim Dietsch. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, Trini Robbins was, was drawing Wonder Woman right at this time. Well-respected yeah. underground artist who was writing, who was drawing a very golden age looking Wonder Woman, uh. They could have tapped her. They could have tapped a lot of people. Uh, never did it, never thought of never used DC's arm to do it. No. Uh, Nevelo did once say that the only well-known alternative comics artist he would even consider was Chester Brown, who's known for doing Ed the Happy Clown. Uh, but that Which never, even I, that never happened.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, another, uh, another key thing is the, the publication schedule. It was erratic. It was unpredictable. I mean, we talked about that Prince issue, where uh, we don't even know if he was called Prince still anymore at that yeah. point. Yeah. That uh, you know, you go from you know a volume of Gregory in late '92, and then you go until you know the middle of '94, and there's an issue of Prince. Yeah. So it's like, you know, where. You know, was were they were they showing up in previews magazine? Were they showing up? Was was there any? I couldn't find anything.
0: Yeah, like how are they like, solicited? Like what what is the, what yeah. was the story here? Uh, like were they I mean, running what, behind or were they just in What happened in 1993? That's my question. Exactly. You know, like what was what was the Piranha offices? Uh, which you said at one time, uh, Nevelo did have a closet for an office.
1: Yes, he was he was scooted into the closet. Uh, yeah.
0: Which is which is <laughs> normal office culture. I want to tell you this is not really sure. DC or no, comics.
1: No, it, it's not an indictment. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just the way things are sometimes. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. So I mean that that right there, we know this today too. Erratic publication schedule can just kill any comic. Yeah.
1: And I heard he tried to tap the uh, the mop that he shared the uh, office with for a uh, Herman the Vermin spinoff. Oh,
0: yeah. Wouldn't, but it, it never came out. out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is it possible that this imprint was never intended to succeed? It was sort of a fuck you to the industry, you know? Seems sort of like a, it. Sort of a middle finger to everybody, in a sense. Comics readers, comics non-readers, you know, uh, executives. Uh, he appeared to be content just overseeing creative output. He didn't even care about commercializing it or... Oh, sorry. Commercializing it or doing a whole lot with it uh, beyond and, just publishing comics.
1: Yeah, and imagine being in that position. That must have been a very exciting spot to be in. Just overseeing creative people not caring if what they're writing is something that anybody's going to read. It's it's basically all for him. For sure. So I mean, I mean, what what a great place to be in. You have these talented creators doing whatever they want, that whatever you want, basically. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's just such a such an interesting spot to be
0: in you know it, I, for a long time I had a belief that if you give ordinary quote-unquote people people that don't consider themselves creative if you give them the outlet they will uh, ultimately put out something beautiful or wonderful uh, oh absolutely and I have to tell you that uh in my experience that's totally wrong that's not right at all <laughs> if you give people the creative outlet usually they'll draw a dick that's really it. they just want to draw a dick in balls and uh, a picture of a, of, a, of a, you know, naked lady, and that's about all there you go. get. Um, and it's it's pretty obvious that w- with his departure, uh, with Mark Nevelo's departure, DC would have rather this made a little money, which is, uh, sure. you can't fault them for either. Uh, you know, they are in the, a business, and uh, while I, I doubt Piranha Press was really uh, breaking the bank for them, uh, it mm. seems like it was a pretty small operation, probably didn't have a ton of overhead yeah, it, it still was wasn't making anyway. any money. Yeah. yeah. They probably figured it was best just to chuck it. And as we'll talk about next week, uh, it did turn into something that was relatively successful and did get uh, stock in the bookstores. But that is for next week. For this week, Indeed. if you want to write into us and tell us uh, all the things that we got wrong or all the things that we got right or that you hate or our it. stupid voices
1: or. Or if you're Mark Neville. If you are Mark
0: this week, we're going to be talking about Paradox Press, which is uh, what came out of. Piranha Press, that was last week's segment. Uh, but why don't you give us some recap, Chris?
1: Yeah, last week we talked about Piranha Press, which was, they were uh, DC's first attempt to explore the alternative comic scene. That's, you know, comics with an X. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also their first foray for into creator owned work. And, you know, it was a great theory, especially at the time. I mean, the, uh, the, the landscape was changing, and it was uh, definitely a potential viable, you know, publishing option. Uh, they brought in a fellow named Mark Nevelo, who was the managing editor and uh, seemed kind of uh, happy just doing something different. Yeah. Really uh, wasn't too interested in the bottom line. It goes without saying he was shortly replaced uh, yeah. <laughs> by, uh, by uh, the more uh, commercially goal-oriented Andy Helfer who was a longtime editor on uh, DC Books and he eventually morphed Piranha into Paradox Press and uh, this was a uh, transformation of the Piranha Press line with a narrower focus on the non-comic book reader. These are more comics for people who don't read comics. Yeah, aimed really, really hard for the bookstore market, and you know we'll get into that deeper as we go along here. This uh, imprint ran, uh, you know, I'm finding conflicting uh, start dates for it because uh, Piranha ended with that Prince book in '94, uh-huh. but I'm seeing some some uh, information saying that. Paradox started in '93. That's probably wrong. It probably started in '94, right after. It was probably a pretty smooth transition. Yeah, it event.
0: might have been a little bit of overlap. You know, they they, sure. might have, they might have put the Prince book to bed and yeah, maybe just to get it out of started the way. it up, and then you know the the print issues showed up after. Who knows? But you know, they were right around right around that same time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it ran until uh, 2001. So a pretty decent run for a uh, experimental imprint.
0: For sure. Uh, they looked a lot different though than uh, most DC comics. They, uh, like Chris said, this was comics for people that don't read comics, so they has had no capes, no powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be different from Vertigo, and that would be lacking fantasy and science fiction elements, and guys with powers like Sandman and, uh, yes. you know, the and Swamp Thing and folks like that. So it was going to be stories about people, I suppose. Uh, the yes. main players of this imprint were Andy Helfer. He was the DC Comics editor who joined in 1981 as a special projects assistant to the uh, legendary Joe Orlando. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an editor for Man of Steel and for Justice League International, both uh, really well-remembered and well-loved runs in the 80s. Uh, I recommend people read both of them, or at least Man of Steel up to a point. <laughs> <laughs> Take Man of Steel to about issue nine or ten. Okay. Um Later, wrote presidential material. John McCain. Uh, wrote a John McCain one-shot for IDW. Yeah. Uh, that could be interesting. You know, we'll see if he might have something in his uh, arsenal for Trump later this <laughs> year. You uh, know, be nice to see the Trump comic,
1: maybe Super oh. Trump. I'm 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 figuring we're probably gonna see a few dozen of those.
0: Yeah, I, I think you know I was like, when I was at the beach, I already saw some T-shirts of uh, Trump opening his shirt to reveal a Superman symbol so you know that
1: I wasn't expecting <laughs> it's
0: it's already in this it's already in the gestalt as you say yes. so uh you know just look for more of that shit to come up this summer uh mm-hmm. someone else involved in paradox was Heidi McDonald who took over as editor following Helfer uh she would later move on to editing vertigo books uh she also is a journalist for comics she uh, does the did the comics beat for the daily comics news source uh she had a is, does she still do this? Pick Heidi's brain section?
1: Well, yeah, it's because it's uh, the Comics Beat is is the site that she runs, and yeah. uh, I was gonna I was gonna send her some questions to, to see if she remembered anything about Paradox or if she could give us any insight. But if you, there's a section called Pick Heidi's Brain, then I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I could send her a you know a question. Yeah. And uh, if you do, it suggests that you give a donation. So uh, yeah, I, I didn't sorry. care that much.
0: Sorry, we are running on a shoestring budget here, Ms. McDonald, so we couldn't mm-hmm. do that. Uh, she also uh, she also worked for Publishers Weekly, years okay. back, writing a. Uh, actually, I think she, I think she got uh, let go this year, but she had an article. Uh, it wasn't weekly. It might have been monthly, uh, essentially about the state of comics and often highlighting um, non superhero comics, uh, and original graphic novels. So she's been around. She she has a quite a pedigree in comics and journalism. And uh, you know she took Paradox Press to its conclusion.
1: Let's see here some of the uh, key publications that uh, they came out with. There was a series of books, and I, I think a lot of people will remember these. If even if they don't remember, they came from Paradox. When they hear what they are, they'll they'll it'll you know pop into mind. For sure. These are the uh, the big book of series. You know you had the big book of Vice, the big book of 70s, yep. the big book of urban legends. It actually it's on the cover. It shows that it's from Factoid Books.
0: Yeah, which but, is interesting. But there is a uh, the the, imprint the paradox logo goes on the spine. Correct. Yeah, it's in yeah. there.
1: This ran seventeen volumes. This is pretty much the you know what, what I think of when I think of paradox, because it was there the whole time. It it came out from nineteen ninety four to two thousand.
0: And, and because as you'll see, other books done by paradox were later reprinted under under different imprints, so that kind yes. of confused. <laughs> confused me and other people. But anyway, what what was this Big Book of series?
1: Uh, They were uh, graphic novel anthologies. They uh, had a bunch of stories in there, you know, concerning one subject. And, uh, you know, like the Big Book of Vice, you had a whole bunch of stories that would, you know, have the common theme of Vice running through them. Um, The 70s, same thing. Um, They were almost, you know, edutainment in a way. You know, they were, uh, because they were nonfiction. You know, yep. they were, uh, you would learn about, it was a very interesting way and it, in a, you know, dare I say fun way to learn some historical stuff that you may have, you know, not cared about previously. Mm-hmm. Th- these are the books that made the significant inroad into the, you know, the non-comic bookstore.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a little collection of these, about five of them that I've gotten over the years. Uh, and that's pretty much the reason, I think, is people go to bookstores thinking, you know, Reggie likes comics. And for years, that was pretty much all you could find was, uh, you, know, you know, this and maybe Dark Knight Returns. And I guess uh, and, and I got to say, they're pretty cool for what they are. They, they do have some good artists. Rick Geary is definitely one of the artists that does a lot of work for them. I can't really think of anyone. Yeah.
1: Uh, right? I think Frank quietly did some.
0: Did Frank quietly do things? I mean, you know, it, it's sort of, it's sort of a, a hodgepodge of creators in there. So there'll be some really good, some not so good, and most of them capable enough to get the job done. This is this isn't, yeah, isn't high flying action, no. so you don't need to have somebody that's so like versed in anatomy necessarily. But I will say, in every single book that I've read, there's things that I learned, and uh, Certainly. you know they're they're worth checking out. They're pretty cheap and black and white comics. So if you see them in the if you see them in the wild don't be afraid yeah. to give them a look. Give
1: them a snag. Yeah, they're uh, they're interesting stuff. It, it, it's almost like looking into uh, the 90s <laughs> when I think about it. In
0: a way, it's, you know, especially the cover treatment of that one also is like this weird pattern yep. right it's like it's like mostly black with a pattern of the of the Factoid Books logo spread yep. all over it and like an off kilter inset picture it just yeah. like, it's
1: just like they were learning photoshop tools very <laughs> much like that yeah <laughs> let's is, skew it yeah. this is
0: like the early days of photoshop so uh yeah it's <laughs> it's but they're cool I, I give them a thumbs yeah. up
1: yeah and another one of the uh, another one of the books they released was uh, a history of violence and that was written by John Wagner who was a co-creator of Judge Dredd mm-hmm. with art by Vince Locke and uh you know, I yeah, it's been a long time since I read this. Um, I actually had to read this for a uh, for a, an American history, an American literature class that I took. Oh wow! And I can't remember a whole lot of it.
0: Yeah, but, I, don't, uh, I don't remember a ton of it except it being, uh, you know, really over the top, uh, <laughs> goriness. But you know, you've written here. My memory of it too was I just did not like the artwork. Uh, yeah. It was just a little too confusing to see what was going on. I, I you know, it sort of fits in a certain style. To be it honest,
1: reminds, it reminds me a little bit of From Hell, but scratchier. Yeah, I could
0: see that. But yeah, From From Hell From Hell is actually kind of taken from a, an almost Victorian style, hmm. uh, from the old uh, pulp papers. Those those uh, covers yeah. of what the what the you know wife's murderer did, or whatever the heck, in like six panels. Yeah, Polishing the knife. Yep. You know, but I, you know, this. What's funny is when I'm thinking about it now, and I'm really just remembering it in my mind, so I could be misremembering a little bit. But doesn't it seem like this almost might have made a better Piranha book? In looks, you know what yes. I mean? Because the art was 100%. so wild, so like un, so experimental in a, in a sense, and sort of unpolished
1: it was ultimately uh, you know made into a, a feature film in 2005 uh, directed by david cronenberg mm-hmm. who uh, who i remember from uh, video Drum and, and the fly two, two of my um, favorites right there yeah and uh, it's an interesting fact here is uh, per the uh, los angeles times this is the last major hollywood film to be, to be released uh, in the VHS format. Huh, that's weird. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's uh, you know apropos of nothing. Uh, there it is. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and this was later reprinted as uh, in a Vertigo uh, under the Vertigo banner in the Vertigo Crime imprint.
0: Yeah, which was which pretty uh, short-lived, as I remember. I think it was this in another. It's
1: book. only a few books. Yeah. And, and we're going to get to that book right now. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Here's another one. It's a uh, Road to Perdition was uh, published in 1998. And this was created by Max Allen Collins, who I remember most fondly as the co-creator of Wild Dog. That's right. And uh, with art by Richard Piers Reyna. And uh, it was kind of based on uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub manga. Mm. It's uh, it's a lot of parallels to be drawn between the two. And uh, this would, you know, just like the one before, become a feature film in 2002 uh, starring Tom Hanks. And in 2013, it was uh, reprinted under the Vertigo Crime imprint.
0: Yeah, it seemed to be an imprint that existed to reprint Paradox pre- Press books that made yeah
1: that absolutely. Made good.
0: Oh, you know, it's interesting. Here we are, two books in two years, uh, and both of them get made into movies. You know, to me, that would be yeah. well for most publishers, that would be a ricketing success. But I have a feeling that there were, uh, you know, creator deals that maybe cut. I mean, this is me just postulating to cut sure. DC out of the largest part of the money. Maybe they didn't, but... Because,
1: uh, yeah, be, I mean, DC didn't really promote them. If no, I exactly, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. really,
0: if if this had been a DC comic, uh, you know, making money, if this was two DC movies, oh, they would have been reprinting those, you know. like yeah. You would never see them out of print forever. No. But, and we
1: would have had a Road to Perdition, uh, Mr. Freeze, Frieza Pops. For sure, yeah, before Road to Perdition,
0: you know, and uh, <laughs> yes. of course, you
1: know... Uh, Pre wrote to Perdition a, a, and a prehistory of violence. Exactly,
0: yeah. <laughs> a, a, his, a history of silence, a history of violins. You know, they would have done everything. Absolutely. So uh, it's it that it's interesting. So I mean, in, in a sense, with those three titles, you could look at this. Uh, with one of them being a series. It's pretty successful imprint. You know, uh, you know they, they sold a lot of uh, the his, the big book ofs and those two made into movies. But then they had a bunch of comics that you will not remember. Uh, So other publications were Stuck Rubber Baby in 1995 by Howard Cruz. This was interesting. It was a civil rights story about growing up gay during the civil rights era in the uh, late 50s into the 60s. Had incredibly detailed art. It was originally intended to be published uh, through Piranha. But uh, I assume Piranha switched over before that could happen. Uh, So it kind of got shifted over to Paradox. That's my... my, uh, guess he would have that's rather a, come out through exactly piranha. yeah he, he would have rather have come out through piranha because the name was more dangerous and subversive than pair of ducks or paradox <laughs> which is sensible although I don't know if that's really the most important part of a comic book yeah. uh, this originally planned to take four year, two years to complete wound up taking four uh, the creators were not given advances and they had to seek grants to complete the project this is in the days before you could do your uh, Kickstarter
1: my friends. So, yeah, so you actually had to have conviction in your project.
0: Yeah, you had to have conviction. You couldn't just, you know, make a lot of empty promises, and you couldn't just appeal to people on the street. You know, by getting grants, mm-hmm. I assume that they got actual funding from some kind of foundation or benefactors that you know uh, could do something. They were true, uh, true patrons instead of the fake Patreon that we see today. Yes, uh, that's just my editorializing on that. Uh, in uh, Howard Cruz's online journal. Mark Nevelo he he says that Mark Nevelo did remain as an editor on a freelance and an uncredited basis, uh, which just shows that how much he wanted this to be a Piranha book, uh, yeah. and he allowed Cruz to have all the creative autonomy he wanted, uh, and didn't really enforce the changes. Uh, basically, I don't know why he bothered since obviously he wanted a very light hand on his work, uh, but Nevelo was very protective of the project and he wanted it told in Cruz's voice, which is why he did what he did. Which is why he did what he could to retain editorial control. Which yeah, he seems to really believe in this uh, project. I think it's understandable, and you know, it's a really uh, heady. Uh, concept, it's, a, it's a
1: landmark publication. You know, but it's... but I have to admit, I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I've read it. I read it a long time ago. I, I have. I actually have the the Paradox Press printing of it. Interesting. And uh, it's a hardcover version, actually, and I. I don't remember a whole lot of it except the the art is just there's like not a free there's not a speck where there isn't pencil it's uh it's, it's very very like really, even the faces you know like freckles everywhere it's just it's, really it's very painstaking it looks like it you know it looks like it took four years is it uh, drawn by Howard Cruz also
0: right written and yeah drawn? yeah uh I mean I wouldn't mind checking it out the story sounds really interesting but I can't, really can't speak to it and uh, I would say. Having blown out two years of its publication schedule, probably did a lot to uh, lose interest for you know some people waiting that might have been waiting for this. If they
1: yeah, were, the press release is kind of expired.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, another one that I did, I did read was Brooklyn Dreams in 1995 by J. M. DeMatteis, and it's uh, basically his uh, autobiography of his life as a kid in Brooklyn. Uh, that was pretty good. I liked that one. Um, you know, not a whole lot to say about it. Some good no. re- good renderings of brownstones and uh, some ch- childhood hijinks. That I don't really remember too clearly, but I do remember enjoying this one. Uh, there were some gone manga adaptations, six volumes of them by Masa- Masashi Tanaka. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, six volume would be the final Paradox publication in September 2000. And then DC would do more uh, mango local- manga localization with the CMX imprint, which I do remember that. I don't remember this adaptation, but i am also never been the hugest manga fan. Uh, yeah, except it's a, for uh, interestingly- like a little
1: dinosaur. It's like a little orange dinosaur. Oh, Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It it, is what it is.
0: It is what it is. You know, it's funny, I did read uh, a lot of Lone Wolf and Cub, so of of all the ones that you mentioned, I have some familiarity, but I know that is a super popular one. And then there was uh, Reinventing Comics in 2000. That's Scott McCloud. This is a follow-up to Understanding Comics, which is itself one of my favorite books, but I've never read Mm -hmm. this one. Uh, This was a common-sense look at the future of comics from angles of creation, production, and reception. Uh, Guess what? Computers are the future, yeah, uh, go figure. it. Seems, seems like seems like uh, this a certain gentleman by the name of Mark Wade had the same claim about digital comics totally taking over print comics by this time and.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I I heard like Peter David had similar yeah, thoughts. Well, uh, Bob Raikes had happened. some
0: thoughts. I don't know <laughs> if that happened really, but. Uh, but you did read this book, so what did you think of it?
1: I did, and actually, I, I wrote. Uh, I went to, when I when I was in uh, community college. I did that uh, comics history class. Basically, it was a, it was an American literature class that I've, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned a couple times. Yeah. And uh, the professor was a very big booster of uh, Scott McCloud. I wrote something on uh, understanding comics, which uh, we both agree was great. Yeah. Excellent book. The reinventing it just seemed like a saying the most obvious things and uh, just wanting to be the first person to say that something's going to happen. Yeah, It's like if a drop of rain hits you and you run to your house and say, hey, it's, I think it's going to rain. Yeah, you're not exactly I mean, a, a prophet. <laughs> you're a not telling the future. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious because if you, you know, and it shows what kind of bubble that comics are in because if you look at anything, computers are the future. Of course, <laughs> Especially, yeah. you know, around the turn of the century you know, when we didn't really have the kind of internet we do now for sure i think everyone saw that that was on the horizon
0: yeah i mean and, look at uh, look at the episodes of seinfeld which are now you know now 25 years old but to see the situations they're in and and, and the office spaces they work in which they yeah. work you'd think it was you know the early the 1950s or something Yeah, you know, it's always and, it's so always about getting to a phone booth or, you know... Yep,
1: I was going to say, I read a, a thing on that that said every problem in Seinfeld could have been solved with one cell phone. It,
0: it, I mean, a lot of them could be, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's really funny how rapidly the world has changed. And, you know, Scott McCloud, maybe maybe by saying reinventing comics was not the right thing, but, you know, adapting comics might have sounded a little bit better. Uh, yeah. But it's going to happen, as you say, regardless, or they will cease to exist. Um, Certainly. Happy to say that comics on the internet are alive and well, so it's uh, it's a good look for us. Well,
1: it depends on how we define well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they, they exist. That's, <laughs> they do exist. That's about all we can really
1: say. And, and there are some goofballs talking about them. <laughs> but with all all good things, you know, the, there is going to be an ending. Oh, wait. And, so. uh, yes, this line ended with uh, three big books uh, on the docket to be published. And... Uh, uh, they they are in various levels of completion and still, even to this day, have not been published or solicited or, or anything. Um, the 18th volume was uh, going to be called The Big Book of Wild Women. And it was going to be uh, hosted, I guess, you know, maybe like one of those... Uh, those, all, those old Elvira House of Secrets books yeah, where there's... like an old vignette. EC
0: comic, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, where there's a Crypt Keeper or something. It's uh,
0: Some of those books, some of them have that. They'll, they'll have a little character in there that sort of embodies whatever the, the topic is, yeah.
1: Yeah, and this was going to be uh, hosted by Susie the Floozy. I don't know who that
0: is. I don't know. I think I think that <laughs> sounds like a nom de plume. You do sometimes see this... Uh, even now, sometimes, I, it's you will do a search for it, and it'll look like it's still going to be published, but folks it's not going to be published. It's done. <laughs> or if it does come out, it's going to be in a totally different format. Yeah. Uh, but maybe we can kickstart it. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that the time. Go
1: fund it. <laughs> there we go. Um, the uh, sales for this, uh, you know, they were successful in the bookstores, but the sales were still relatively low. Yeah. Um, it uh, really, it didn't, it wasn't as lucrative as envisioned, and I think, I think maybe it's unfair because I think they were always comparing it to the mainline universe and, and even Vertigo. Yeah, um, which at that time it, was, booming, you know yeah and I mean this this line was always in the shadow of vertigo I mean it started just around the same time um and you know vertigo was at the time healthy vital just critically acclaimed why would you need a paradox press if also you already like have no,
0: no capes you know even though yeah even though it did have powers but it had and it had a lot of Normalish stories about just yeah,
1: regular people. Put on Harvey P. Car like, for goodness' sake. Sure. But I mean around the around the turn of the century, I mean Sandman wasn't being published anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, uh Doom Patrol was long gone, Animal Man was long gone. They they pretty much were the creator owned haven. You know, yeah. it was transmetropolitan. I you know, Preacher was ending. It was uh it, wait, it wait, wasn't we're getting into why the last man soon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple years later you'd have that. And uh so really why would you need a Paradox Press if you have that already? That it's a, it's a more uh, identifiable brand. It's a it's a it's you know perceived as a cooler brand. Well, it's sure. going to appeal to uh, it's going to appeal to those same comics for people who don't read comics.
0: The, the, uh, there's also one uh, one problem with getting into bookstores. You know, the good side is now you've reached a new audience. The other side is all books at bookstores are returnable, uh, which is not the case with the direct market.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't uh, so when,
0: so I'm, I'm sure that this had something to do with that. Uh, that, you know, they were able to get these books in there, but especially around the turn of the century, around 99 to about 2002, Barnes & Noble was, was doing what we in the uh, publishing industry called a like a fresh produce kind of cycle, where if your book didn't go in a couple of months, they sent it back. And that was unusual. That was new in bookstores. It was always a, a, an agreement that books were returnable, but sort of tacitly understood that they were going to hang on to them until they really ran out of space. Uh, Barnes and Noble, where they had space, they wanted to spend on note cards and, you know, whatever the fuck else—pens and pencils and you know, you know, toys. The stationery, yeah. Exactly. So you know, they they didn't feel like hanging on to them. This this was actually affected the industry tremendously right around that time, and I'm sure this affected Paradox because, you uh, know, not, not again—not that I think sales were. Tremendous, but I think that they were probably returned in numbers that DC uh, wasn't prepared wasn't for, prepared huh? for to, to handle, especially books that are uh, fairly expensive to produce. You know, they, not only do they have a lot of creators involved, but you know they're oversized. Uh, yep. you know they're paperback-bound books that cost money.
1: Yeah, they're it's, boutique. It's a boutique line, basically.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm guessing that, that that was really the double-edged sword of getting into bookstores for them. But uh, that. not totally gone forever. There is a legacy for Piranha and Paradox Presses. Uh, you know, these were this was DC's first forays into creator-owned work, and now they have all kinds of Ficockta deals with their creators. <laughs> you know, where they can own part of a new character, or they can, you know, they can if they write a book for DC, they get to do a one for Vertigo. You know, and they they definitely parlay that against you know to to get creators on board. Uh, I mean, they just signed a slew of exclusive and I'm sure you're going to see to go books from almost all of them. Uh, DC's attempt to expand the consumer base from out of the direct market by aiming at bookstores uh, pretty much has succeeded. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go to the bookstore now, there's a huge graphic novel section in most Barnes & Noble. The one in the Barnes & Noble near my job uh, just actually expanded to another two shelves. Oh, wow. Uh, granted, I'd say a full shelf of that is manga. Which counts, oh, who's I'm who's not who? saying it's not, but uh, there's just so much material out there, and, and DC had a lot to do with that, uh, not to mention with their evergreen titles, uh, you know, Watchmen and uh, Dark Knight Returns Sand and stuff Man. like that, yep. Sandman. Uh, so other publishers had to follow suit, of course, post and Casada, Marvel made a special effort to keep as much of their contemporary work in print as possible uh, based on the same model, and they still do that to this day. Uh, as yeah, matter they fact, do it even better. Oh, well, I, yeah, for, for sure. They they definitely keep their stuff... They they, they come out with their collections a lot quicker. Uh, now, the, now the model is... doesn't matter what they print, everything gets collected uh, yeah. in trade, which, you know, is...
1: It's the television season model.
0: Exactly. It affects the way the comics are written, obviously. It affects the way they're being bought. It's hard to say, you know, whether this is... We, you know, not having seen the numbers, we don't know whether this is a good or a bad thing. But I find it hard to believe that anyone could justify doing a trade collection of, uh, you know, Dead Man and Challenges of the Unknown from the New Fifty Two. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> the three people that bought that did not justify the several thousand dollars in expense. I have a feeling, but I don't know. That's me.
1: Yeah, yeah it's interesting to, because I mean, I, I was talking to somebody and we were comparing our our bookshelves from you know ten years ago and now. Yeah. Or fifteen years ago now. And it's like you look at your bookshelf then and it's you know, it's Watchmen, it's Dark Knight, it's uh, you know, those those, you know, books that you wanted on your shelf. Yeah. And now it's like Cable and Deadpool, Volume Eight. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like what? it's like it's just so so different. Am I ever gonna read that? You know what I mean? Like yes.
0: uh, you if you want, you can talk to my wife about my graphic novels. A problem over here. It's definitely an issue <laughs> Uh, ongoing still still to be unfold uh gentle <laughs> listeners so I'll tell you about it but uh, as you said you know DC uh, Marvel does print collections a lot faster than DC as a matter of fact you can usually get a collection and then pretty much jump on uh right after that or an issue in from the next Arc
1: oh, yeah season. right or right around the turn of the century they published a either a three- or four-issue miniseries to tie in with the uh, the Daredevil movie. It was Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra. Yeah. And on the day the third, and or either the third or fourth, whichever was the final issue, on the day that that was released, the trade came out the same day.
0: Uh, DC did give more opportunity and exposure to lesser-known creators, uh, be they new or semi-established in the underground scene. And you can go on, you know, Neil Gaiman pretty much blew up because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Brian Vaughn. Really blew up because of Why the Last Man. Even though you know he had done Astonishing X Men, I think before that, but
1: that's not what uh, he did. uh, Runaways.
0: Oh, that's what he did. I'm sorry. Yeah, Yeah, Runaways, which you know is a is a great run, but people remember Why the Last Man. That really is his, and I bet that it led to him writing Lost and stuff. Yeah. Now the stuff he does, pretty much, he writes his own ticket. So you know, it it definitely kind of it. it, You know, it's it's interesting. We we talk about. Shifts in the industry, how they sort of generations come and go. In the late 60s, you had a lot of out with the old guard, in with the new guard. At DC, it would have been like Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. At Marvel, you would have seen maybe guys like John Byrne and, and uh, people coming Chris in. Chris Claremont. Chris Claremont around that time. That doesn't happen as much anymore. There, there aren't seismic shifts like that so much. And I think it's because there are more imprints like Vertigo and more independent publishers to kind of keep seeding the industry with yeah. talent on a regular basis. So now, you know, there definitely new talent comes in, but it comes in at kind of a steady pace instead yeah. of just kind of like a line of demarcation. This was one <laughs> era of comics. This is a new era. So, uh, you know, that's that's all because of Piranha and Paradox uh, and an ultimately Vertigo-type imprints.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, talking about their legacy, uh, in the you know, they're the whole imprint thing kind of blew up on for DC I mean in the years that followed you know uh, well first looking at Paradox itself it would have become redundant in the new landscape yeah because uh, you know DC still had that imprint bug they wanted different lines they had uh, we, we mentioned earlier the CMX line which was a um, manga localizations, which is pretty much only known for censoring a few covers now <laughs> yeah um, you know, the Vertigo imprint was already seen as their boutique line. They were getting the, you know, the high profile or the, you know, pseudo-indie alternative creators to, you know, apply their trade there, and, uh, you know, it was filled predominantly with critically acclaimed creator-owned work at that point. And it was already a strong presence in the bookstores. We mentioned the Evergreen model, and Sandman is definitely part of that. That gets a that seems to get a new printing almost annually. Oh
0: my goodness! And different editions and versions. You know, between that and sure. Watchmen, you could just fill up your whole bookshelf with versions of that shit.
1: <laughs> of that same one. <laughs> that <yeah>. same book. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, a few years later, they did uh, the DC Focus imprint, I remember which that. was a yeah. uh, very short-lived. Uh, only went about a year, and it was a kind of more mature, but kind of not. Uh, it was uh, focused on. Kind of, it was focused on people with powers basically not superheroes so much yeah, but people who had powers and you know it it wasn't very successful the second season quote unquote of uh, focus books was just published under DC. I, it was t- just t- DC. I took
0: this as sort of like their attempt at an ultimates universe could be I don't could know be. you know maybe it, it's sort of it's uh you know one way to look at it but yeah they definitely I think there were even possibly a couple of others that were you know that
1: were social yeah, there was lived. There was Minx, which was the yeah. the comics for girls who don't read comics. That's right. And uh, there was also, uh, you know, I don't I, mean, I don't know if it's worth its whole seg its own its own segment, but there was also Zuda, which was their first attempt at DC web comics.
0: I, I vaguely remember. I never saw those. I don't think my computer yeah. could handle it. But
1: <laughs> not that, at not the in time, 2006, 2007. No. It was. Uh, it. I think they it actually started out of a contest. It was uh, they were trying to see who would do the best web comic for DC, and it wasn't DC characters, wow. but uh, it was just under you know the DC publication branding. Yeah, yeah, and you know we we said all of that so we can say this. Yep, <laughs> At the, uh, you know, just a couple of years later, there were going to be a lot of comics for people who don't read comics. So Paradox was redundant, I mean, <laughs> and it was uh, only the tip of the iceberg.
0: I mean, that, that's pretty much, in a sense, the current premise of Image. Is Absolutely. Comics, that, comics for people that don't want to read superheroes, they can read, you know, these Image comics. And I'll tell you, they've made quite a go of it. They've made quite a big success. You know, they, they just recently, I think they slipped a little bit, but uh, until recently, they were holding 10 and 11% of share of the Marketplace. Mm-hmm. which is huge. That is tremendous. Imagine that, yeah. We're talking about a company that, even in their explosive beginnings, I don't think they were reaching that, of course. You know, Marvel and DC were selling a lot. Yeah, they were then exploding. too, they were exploding too. along with them, you know. But, you know, it, this is... Uh, this is, not, this, this is sort of unprecedented, the landscape of comics right now. I go into the store. I went into the store just this week, uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact. And I asked the guy, you know, how's Rebirth doing? How's Marvel doing? He said, Rebirth is picking up some interest, obviously. The new number ones are just out. Marvel has pretty much, a lot of it is dying on the rack, uh, except to his Polis customers. And he says people come in for Boom and Oni and Image. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's in New York City. Uh, you know, it's sort of, and that isn't that isn't the biggest comic store in New York City. So this may not be the case at your local comic store, but it definitely shows there's been a shift, there's been a change in what people expect to see from comics. And personally, as someone that grew up uh, loving comic art more than comic books, and maybe we'll mm-hmm. get into that someday down the down the line, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm glad to see it. You know, the the language is being preserved if Absolutely. not if not the intellectual properties and that's for fucking corporations to worry about not me yeah.
1: No and, and you mentioned uh, the the change there. I mean out here in Phoenix, you know, you have you have your Walking Dead Day. You have yeah. your Saga Day. Oh
0: yeah, it's huge, right?
1: Yeah, it's Yeah. Like... It's, you know, that's the the comic stores here will they'll tweet out that it's Walking Dead week or it's Saga week. Wow. It's because they know that they're going to see a whole fresh new bunch of faces.
0: Yeah. And
1: it, and it, they do
0: It works. Uh, you know, people are really into these and I have to say it's good for everybody even if it's not
1: specifically good for Batman. Yeah, if it's if it's not <laughs> even if it yeah, if it's not to your taste it's still good for for the preservation of the industry, the preservation of the art. It's but it's you know still
0: good. since Batman's always prepared. You think he's just going to like switch over to like a normal guy book, you know? It'll be the story of Bruce Wayne Bruce he has Wayne, a crusader. Some...
1: He has some uh, Walking Dead repellent.
0: <laughs> so anyway, that wraps up our talk about Paradox and Piranha before it. Uh, probably the only place to see anywhere or hear anywhere people talking at such length about these imprints. So soak it up, folks. But we have a super special announcement for everybody that listens to Weird Comics History. And that Gosh. is we are going to stop doing the segment for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Uh, we have grown too big for our britches, folks, and we are cramping Jim and Eric style, so in two weeks, uh, I'm not sure what day, Chris and I are going to debut uh, the first episode of Weird Comics History, the solo podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. As not part of the regular main Weird Comics podcast, we've been uh, talking a lot about it and really getting into it. It'll be on the regular Weird Science DC Comics podcast feed Uh, that's where you'll find us. So if you are subscribed, you're going to get it automatically. And if you're not, you better take a look because it'll show up. Um, But part of this is because of your support and interest, and we really appreciate the kind words people have been giving us. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it it, it definitely told us that maybe this was something people wanted to get a little more of. So we will be doing some long-form podcasting coming down the line where I don't need to uh, do all kinds of creative editing to try to squeeze it into... Half an hour, which is yes. still still pretty long, and for a you, segment. Yes. If you think that's bad, you should uh, listen to the chatter Chris and I have before we even record. You know, there's like a nice hour of that.
1: Yeah, too. Our, our Skype call is going on four and a half hours right now. <laughs>
0: oh, <So> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're we're real excited for that. Uh, I don't know if you. And want it's to also anything.
1: the it's also the next step in uh, Jim and Eric taking over the world.
0: That is also this is also part of what we're calling the Wadcast, which is Jim Werner's... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> podcasts, you know, conglomerate network. Yes. So I'm sure you're going to see a whole bunch. There's going to be Eric doing, uh, you know, horror movies, and there's going to be, you know, Chris will do another one just about how hot it is. It's gonna, we're going to have so many goddamn podcasts.
1: <laughs> and they'll, they, maybe they'll finally do that Lost Boys uh, Marvel, Marvel
0: podcast. <laughs> well, you know, with the, the, we are doing Marvel comics for the site now. So uh, we are branching out, folks. Things are changing very rapidly here for the summer at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And uh, we hope you stay with us. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, complaints, uh, please direct them to Comics at gmail.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie.
1: I'm at Ace Comics.
0: And, of course, I tell you every week, you got to go to Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com. Uh, he actually did, not too long ago, about three weeks ago, you did review all four issues of Wild Dog. I did. Right? So yes. If you, you want if you want to do a brush up on on who that is who wild dog is we mentioned him earlier in the show that's a great place to go check it out Uh, he's coming into the tv show too that's right he's coming into arrow so if you want to you want to get a uh, little leg up on what that might be like although it'll probably bear no resemblance to the comic (laughs) i do want to make that clear but you know just in case you want to know something you should check that out i also want to say before we sign off that we will still be contributing to the podcast but in a different segment that we'll reveal uh so uh don't worry we're not going to vanish from the the main podcast entirely we're just going to do
1: this or worry because we're not gonna
0: leave <laughs> what, did I, what did, I, did I say
1: you said don't worry i said well maybe worry. Or oh,
0: maybe worry yeah maybe <laughs> you maybe should worry that we're still there so uh yeah but we're just going to do this uh comics history one in addition So you're actually going to get more of us. So maybe this uh, was not the best idea. But anyway, we'll uh, (laughs) go along with it. And for this episode, which is definitely long enough, we're going to sign off. you have anything else there, Chris?
1: Uh, Thanks for listening. We will uh, catch you on the other side.
0: Take it easy, everybody.